0: what's up amanda smith here thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of how she did it i'm so excited to have you with me make sure after this episode is over if you haven't already yes i am talking to you hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode so this week's guest is currently an assistant coach with the nba's dallas mavericks she has also worked as a coach with the sacramento kings She was formerly a head coach in the WNBA working with the Seattle Storm and the Sacramento Monarchs and she's an ex-pro baller herself. She was a part of the WNBA's inaugural season back in 1997. I am so excited for you to get to listen to this episode as she shares some of her experiences and what she's learned along the way. Here is Jenny Busick.
1: very excited to have you on the show because, um, hello, everyone will get into her resume. It's absolutely incredible.
0: But I also have some very interesting information
1: I've been excited to share with you, and that is that you and I share a birthday. No way. We do. That's a good sign. And you know who (laughs) else shares a birthday with us is De'Aaron Fox. So when I coached him, his rookie year, we were both (laughs) rookies in the (laughs) NBA, and and now every time I see him, I just call him twelve twenty. Can I also be called twelve twenty? I have never you can had be in the twelve twenty club. And I would be flattered. For sure, you can be in the twelve twenty club. It's a very, very exclusive, elite, and cool club. I don't think you know how much that means to me. Okay, <laughs> <I'm a little laughs> <bit over> here, <laughs> and we're only like thirty seconds into the convo. Come on, badge for life. I like that you mentioned, Darren Fox because you, like you said, worked with the Sacramento Kings. Now you're an assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks. I first want to ask you, during the NBA season, what is just like a day in the life of Coach Jenny Busek look like? Well, you know, it's been different every year. So this is yeah. my, this will be my third year. Well, actually, we just finished my third year. Let me put it that way. And it's been, every year has been extremely different. You know, the first year I was in Sacramento, um, I was in more of a player development role. At that time, there was only one other female coach in the NBA. That was Becky Hammond. And and so it was still really, really um, not something that people thought could work. You know, a lot of people would say either to my face or around me that, that, oh yeah, it can work in San Antonio because San Antonio is like a very unique Disney World situation, but it can't work anywhere else in the NBA. And so there was a lot on the line, um, that first year. And, um, and that happened to be the year that, that I got pregnant through the IVF process on my fifth and final attempt. And so like my worlds were just colliding. Um, so I'm pregnant the whole season. I didn't tell anybody because of the importance I felt of, um, you know, hopefully showing that a female can do this um other than in San Antonio, and so I didn't want any distractions from that, and I didn't want any special treatment or the guys being careful around me or the coaches being protective because I was pregnant uh because they were just super great guys, and i I thought they they might be, so I really just wanted to show that it could be done pregnant or not um and so that year was was just a challenge, you know, trying to deal with first time being pregnant. And then, um, and then the pressure of, of of the spotlight of can this be done? Um, so that was the first year, and just trying to get my footing and and navigate um, a new territory here. And then you know I moved to Dallas second year. Um, I have a one month old baby when we moved and started that position, and and my role um, m- just multiplied significantly overnight. And so I'm dealing with this lack of sleep and trying to figure out all the things that come along with being a mom for the first time and then a really expanded role. So, I mean, I hardly remember that year, to be honest, it was a blur, (laughs) just trying to keep my head above water and, and my brain was not functioning fully. And, and so that was just a blur trying to trying to figure all that out. Um, You know, and then last year was the year of the pandemic and, uh, and the bubble. And so that was just a crazy year and completely different from the previous two for obvious reasons. Um, and I, I wasn't in the bubble because they wouldn't let children go um, until later they would let some of the players mm-hmm. and then very, very later they let some of the coaches. But originally they had told us no, no families for coaches. And so I was working intensely from uh, Dallas and sending video edits and just Zoom calls and I helped out with the TV broadcast. Um, and just doing stuff from here while the team was in the bubble. So, again, like all three years have been extremely different, a day in the life. I don't even know. I mean, (laughs) pick a day, and it's pretty different every day. You have spoken very openly about what you called your two biggest dreams of coaching in the NBA and being a mother, and we know that women all around the world working in different jobs have babies right? Like we know this to be true in all different areas of the workforce. You just happened to be the first to become pregnant while coaching in the NBA. And like you mentioned, you hit it. You weren't sure how that was going to go over with your colleagues, players. But what would you tell future moms that will have positions similar to yours about your experience and what you learned? That's it's a great question and it's something that I'm I'm still really very much in the thick of. Um you know one of the things that I know is that our country needs to to have these tough conversations about how can we make um traditionally male dominated workplaces whether it be corporate America, professional sports, whatever it may be there's a there's a lot of workforces like that just more available for, for mothers, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's subtle things, but these, a lot of these are very systematically set up for men. And, um, and so what happens is females, I think, are, are smart enough to look down the, the road of their career path, even maybe before they've even cho- chosen a career path, and they eliminate themselves from certain careers, from certain jobs, um, or they put a feeling on themselves because they, they, they can see that at a certain point as they climb the ladder, quote-unquote, um, things are going to become mutually exclusive. And so they limit themselves, or they, they don't even apply for certain jobs, or they don't even go into certain careers because they can see how they, they see it as mutually exclusive at some point. So I think that's a, that's a major issue, and that's why I think it's really important and respectful what the Mavericks have done because they've really looked at that and said, okay, how can we make this where it's not mutually exclusive? And we can make this uh, a situation where not just a mother, but a single mother um, can still coach in the NBA. And they've asked themselves a lot of tough questions and they've made accommodations in it. And it is, I think it is not always popular what they're doing because it can be perceived as special treatment um, by men, you know, but, but at the end of the day, there are certain realities if you're a mother and you're the primary caregiver. And especially if you're a single mother, um, there are certain accommodations that need to be had. And I don't want to say that it's a handicap, but just like, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in a wheelchair, um, companies have to put in ramps. They have to make certain accommodations or they could say, yeah, we, we would love to have somebody with a disability, but if they don't have certain things in place, then that person doesn't that person eliminates themselves because they can't even get in the in the room and I'm talking literally in that example, but I think you you get my idea and you can see how that is just symbolic for yeah, oh yeah, we're all about diversity, but is it really accommodating and yeah. inclusive um, not just in theory but in actuality and in reality and logistically, and so there are tough conversations, tough questions, uncomfortable conversations that need to be had if you want to not eliminate or force a certain population of people to self-eliminate um, and, and you, you minimize a talent pool. You know, you're, you're actually minimizing a talent pool and you're not tapping into all the beautiful advantages of diversity within a, within a group or within a company. Were you at all surprised from the support you received from your colleagues? I mean, shock is an understatement. You know, I remember because I did tell Dave Yeager, who was the head coach in Sacramento, when I was about three or four months pregnant, because we were playing tennis on the road. Like almost every road trip, Dave and I would go to the local tennis courts and we'd challenge people and we'd play against them. And, you know, you're not supposed to get your heart rate above 150 and you're not supposed to be out like when it's super hot. And we'd be down in Miami, Florida and super competitive and my heart rate's skyrocketing. And I'm like, okay what am I going to tell him? I, I can't keep doing this. So I finally said, Dave, I can't keep playing tennis and here's, here's why. And I also just needed him to know in case anything went wrong, you know, um, cause I was having to sneak off on the road and get ultrasounds and blood work done at like 6am before our meeting started, you know, and, and so just, I needed him to know, you know, just to cover me in that way. And, and he was totally respectful of the confidentiality aspect of it, but we had some tough conversations and he, he, He he asked me some tough questions. They were important questions, though, and and I had asked most of them to myself. But one of the things he said was, You know, you have a bright future in the NBA. um, But if being a mother costs you your career and you're in the NBA, are you at peace with that? Um, And I had already thought that through. And yeah. I was at peace with that. I was very clear in my convictions that the priority in my life at this stage was to do everything I could to become a mother. Um, and and so if that cost me my career in the NBA, if that cost me my career in coaching, if that cost me pretty much anything, <laughs> um, I it was just that important to me. I do think that's another thing that I would share with women that are thinking about being a mom, thinking about their career tracks, paths. Uh, choices and trying to to have a vision of how that fits in with being a mother, being a wife or whatever as well, um, it's surprising that when you have your priorities in straight and your convictions in straight and your boundaries kind of in your mind of where the tipping points are in certain areas, that if you'll have those conversations and they're tough conversations and you'll ask the questions and you'll give your boundaries, how many people will... Given a, with given a chance, hadn't thought about it. Accommodate, um, for example, when I had uh, when I was eight months pregnant, Sacramento had offered me to return. Another organization brought me in for an interview, and Dallas brought me in for an interview. And I told all three of them. I mean, it's obvious I'm eight months pregnant right now, but you know I don't I don't feel like it's going to be right for me to travel next year, at least for the first six months of my child's life. Um, and if that's a deal breaker for you, and that doesn't fit with with what you need from me as a coach, I totally get it. But this is my my essentially my boundary. So if you can't if you can't work with that, then you know it's I can't do this. And that that was a bold statement, you know, especially when it was so new to have females coaching in the NBA. Um, and I knew it they might say no, and that would be it. But I was like I said, shocked is an understatement all three teams said, oh, okay. And they were willing to work with me on that. So I think it is important as women not to just think, okay, just because I'm a minority, just because I'm the only one uh, around, I don't see anybody else that looks like me, just because I have different needs to be successful, um, don't be ashamed of that. Like speak it up because what happens if you don't, then you either, you either like I said, eliminate yourself or you end up selling your soul for your job in a way that um, is going to eat at you from the inside out or compromise your motherhood or compromise your marriage, and, and it will be things that you regret. And you'd be amazed how willing people are to work with you if you'll just ask. And I've seen men do that, and I challenge women now to have that straight in their own heart and mind and have the same courage to have those conversations. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right in that. Those conversations of setting boundaries in whatever it is are usually uncomfortable, but they need to be normal. And I really appreciate you sharing part of that story with us here on the show. Well, it's really some Mavericks leadership. You know, I mean, what what they've done with me is challenging other organizations, not just in the NBA, to look at these things. And see what they're willing to do or not, um, or without saying it, say we're, we're not we're not willing to to make this a situation where mothers can can do this, and again limit their their talent pool. <clears throat> so I think the majority of the credit does uh, you know does go with the Mavericks, but to the women out there, I think as long as you've got it clear in your mind what the tipping points are, even if the Mavericks or these other teams had said I'm sorry. We, we can't hire you if you're not willing to travel all the time, um, I would have been at peace walking away from that because I knew I would have asked and I would have just believed that it's, not, it's been not meant to be. Well, as we're talking about you being a badass mama, coaching in the NBA, you've also worked as a head coach in the WNBA. You are an ex-collegiate and professional player. I want to go back, though, to how you first, found the game of basketball. I just loved sports. Um and I loved, you know, being outside and hanging around. All my friends were boys growing up and whatever they were doing, we were running around the neighborhood, climbing trees, throwing rocks, you know, hanging on the back of cars with our skateboards, <laughs> breaking into empty schools that were closed down. I mean, I just was that kid that loved challenges and activity and and, you know, we'd make up games constantly, like whether it had a ball or not, it was just all about just playing. And um, and so I loved all sports and I played all sports really and entirely because of the love. And I was fortunate to come from a home where, um, you know, academics was, was what was emphasized and sports were, were mess- it was message that sports were for fun and for development and not for, you know, future professional or even college career so it took a lot of pressure off me you know and I mean my mom in particular really protected me from people trying to get me to specialize young and oh if she just would just play tennis all year long she'd be a pro oh she would just you know do this all year long she'd be a pro and my mom like we're not doing this so that she can be a pro we're doing this so she can have fun and so I got to be a kid and just enjoy it and I never lost my love for all the sports and basketball just happened to be my favorite. Um, it wasn't even my best sport, but it was my favorite. And so that's been the one that, that I've just continued to, to be a part of because of the love, um, you know, the love of the game and the love as a player. And then now as a coach, you know, trying to help the players not lose their love and continue to play for the love and still have an environment that is, it is, that is motivated by the joy and the love, the childlike joy that, that I think all players perform best with and protect that and insulate them as much as I can for that, um, you know, and just help them have a great team experience and learn all that they're to learn in, of life principles through, through the sport of basketball and through the team sport of basketball. So it's become a huge passion of mine with a tremendous amount of purpose, but it's all fueled by just pure love. I was looking over this sort of timeline of nineteen ninety-seven you are a part of the WNBA's first season. Nineteen ninety eight you suffer a career ending injury. Nineteen ninety-nine you start your coaching career working with the Washington Mystics. That's a lot of change. And that's a huge change. Was coaching the obvious next step for you or Did you have to consider what your life was maybe going to look like without playing this game that you had always had? Yeah, so it was an interesting uh, progression. Um, When I graduated from the University of Virginia, it was was 1997, but I had a five-year major. Um, It was a double major, sports medicine, sports management, and I was planning on going to med school my entire family's doctors on both sides for many generations. And so I was going to med school. When my playing career ended, it was 96, and then I had a fifth year to finish the double major. But in 96, there was no WBA. So, you know, there were a few women going over and playing overseas, but that didn't interest me. I wanted to just go to med school. So 96 yeah. was um, my last game in my head. And we, we lost in the Elite Eight, University of Tennessee, um, after blowing a, a huge lead and, and they went on to win the championship. And it was just, to me, it was like very, very painful, not just to blow an opportunity to, you know, we thought win a national championship, but it was to me, the end of my career playing at that point. And that was uh, a death. I mean, every, every athlete that plays at a high level knows what I'm talking about. When you when your career ends, whether it's by choice, by injury, by whatever age, um, you experience a grieving process as if somebody very close to you has passed. Because a big part of your identity, no matter how well-rounded you are, <laughs> um, is in the game, is in playing the game, is in is in your team, is in the locker room experience. Is, it, it just is. Even if you're a straight-A student with lots of friends and lots of other interests, it's a hu- it becomes a huge part of who you are. And so there is a, a death process that has to occur at some point. For me, it occurred in ninety six, nineteen ninety seven. 1997, I was f- finishing my majors, but I was extremely depressed and went through all the stages of grief and lots of counseling with my family and friends um to get to the other side of that and right as I got to the other side of that and I'm coming back to life and I'm like really healed from you know like that whole grieving process and that whole death of that side of myself the WNBA starts Mm -hmm. and it was great because I went and tried out but there was no need in me to make a team to play anymore it was just again for the pure love of the game and the love of competition with absolutely nothing to lose nothing to gain, just you know, if it happens, it happens. If not, I mean, I, I was healed, and so when the injury occurred, uh, you know, about a year later or whatever it was, um, and I played overseas trying to see if I could come back from it, and I knew, like, I was done. All, all my family and friends was very were very concerned that I was going to go through, or, or I was going to bottom out again, but I'd already healed. I'd already filled that part of myself with you know, um, other things, and so I was I was at peace. This is not meant to be. And, and then I started the process of trying to evaluate um, what I was supposed to be doing next. And in that evaluation process is when I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't coaching. I never wanted to coach. I I thought it was a default position for people who didn't know what else to do. And I was almost like very arrogant about the fact that, no, I'm not one of those people that doesn't have any other (laughs) options. and just going to default to that. Um, But when I was honest with myself and looked in the mirror and looked at the things that were important to me and energizing to me and. And the things that I love to do, um, I realized that the WMBA and the purpose and the potential of that league after being part of the inaugural season was something that I needed to be a part of. The league was very young and was just in survival mode, like, is this going to work? You know, because no professional sports league at that time had ever survived, had never had ever succeeded, had never worked, had ever worked. But being part of the inaugural season where we were going into these massive NBA arenas and you would look up into the stands and there would be grown women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s in tears because of what this represented and the struggles that they had lived, the oppressions that they had lived, the lack of opportunity and choices that they had lived. To see the young girls looking at us almost confused, to see women doing things that they'd only seen men do their whole lives, And just look at these light bulbs going off in them, not just to be a professional basketball player, but can I actually do things that I always always thought only boys could do? You know, and then to see young boys in the games with our jerseys on and hearing their mom tell us stories about them being in the backyard, pretending like they were Cheryl Suits and Cynthia Cooper and Lisa Leslie. And it's like, these young men are going to grow up with a different respect for women. And that's going to help them as fathers and husbands and, and businessmen. And, you know, it just seemed to matter. And so I was really gripped with the purpose of it and wanted that league to succeed. And and, and so that's where I, I just started thinking, like, I want to be a part of this league. And coaching was, was the place. You keep coming back to this word purpose. And I'm wondering if you have defined what that is in your eyes that allows you to, to lay your head on your pillow at night and and be at peace? Well, it's changing, you know, Um, I was very clear in, in 1999 that I was supposed to coach in the WNBA to help that league succeed and to be an optimal team sport environment for women. These women deserve to to have a great team sport experience, and no one knew how to do that for women yet. A professional female athlete is different than a professional male athlete. So it was twofold. One, to help those athletes have the best experience possible, because that's what sports were for, and then also um, to help the league reach its purpose and potential and those things I just referred to in terms of how important I think this league is to our, not just our country, but to the world. Um, I really believe the WMDA is is critical and, and there's still a lot of untapped potential for that league, but, um, you know, and then as I got older, um, you know, it was, it was, of course, continuing to be about that league thriving and reaching its potential. But as I got older, and I was no longer younger than all the players that I was coaching, it was it, my purpose became to be a safe place, and, re- and the best resource I could be for the women of the WNBA. And they haven't necessarily been treated for a lot of reasons. They've been marginalized and not given the best of the best, which they deserve, because this population. Women is, are the most phenomenal people I've ever been around in my life. I mean, the, the stories that I could tell you about these women and just how incredible they are. And so I was really passionate about trying to learn the best of the best X and O wise, the best of the best player development wise, the best of the best from psychology and mental health and anything that they would need. I wanted to be, you know, a resource giving them the best because I believed they deserved it. And I wasn't really seeing that they were getting that. Um, and so my heart was for the women of the WNBA and to help them reach their potential on the floor as women achieve all their dreams, realize their, um, their purpose and potential on and off the court, um, and just, you know, help them be the best version of themselves. And so, I mean, that was my, my passion and my purpose for many, 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 many years. And they got all of me, all of me. Um, but, you know, things have changed since I've become a mother. And while I still have a huge heart for them, and now I have a a, a huge heart for the, the men of the NBA and being a safe place for them and a great resource for them, you know, my heart is a little bit divided. My time mm-hmm. is a little bit divided because now my number one purpose at this stage of my life is as much as I've mentored and been an exhorter in other people's kids' lives to, um, to mentor and disciple my child and give her a great foundation, um, so hopefully she can be an incredibly special per- person um, contributing to, to our society and thriving herself. Do you think that she will play basketball?: Is she already like:: I'm, know, really,
0: I'm assuming she's, she's really, like out there dribbling in your kitchen at like.
1: Uh, no, a few years old. You know, <laughs> no, she's not she is um she is very gifted genetically. I will say that. I mean, when you do it, the, when you do it the way that I did it, I mean, you are breeding, you know? Like I'm going to the website and I mean, I'm typing in stuff to to find the best genes possible, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so she she's, she's yeah, not, everyone, um, got a, a future pick. Yeah. I mean, she's got good genes, you know, she's clever, she's, she's coordinated. Um, You know, she's got a lot of energy, but I know that it's going to be about the seeds that are planted inside of her that is divine, that are divine um, of what she loves. And and that's going to steer her towards what her divine meant to be already preordained uh, passions and purposes will be. And, and I'm only cultivating those seeds, I can't form them. And so I'm cultivating what's already inside of her and trying to discover that alongside of her. And whatever that is, is it's what it's gonna be. So would it be fun if she loves sports? Oh yeah, that would be a ton of fun. But you know, again, I learned from my parents that,
0: um,
1: you know, it's you gotta form your own path. And, and I wanna support her the same way my parents did and never, ever, ever, Made me feel pressure. In fact, I'm already feeling like I'm having to protect her from pressure because people find out who I am, what I do, what I have done. (laughs) They see her on the playground doing stuff that other kids her age aren't doing, and they're asking me, when are you going to get her in organized this? When are you going to get her organized that? And I'm like, I I don't know that we're going to do organized sports till she's 14. I don't know. know, But it's not going to be what people assume. It will be way later than what people will assume, I can tell you that. I think your parents, you know, said we're not doing this to be a pro and have fun. No, that's right. That's right. You know, and yeah. I and I know the science and both the experience and the science about the detriment of early specialization um, and just how important it is that, that, you know, people who go a long way in anything love it. That is mm-hmm. the most important thing. And so I, that is what I'm going to be looking for is what she genuinely loves. I love that. You can adopt me as well if you want. You're like amazing <laughs> mom over here. That makes me feel really old. <laughs> no, no. But like you would have like a live in babysitter. So I don't Hey. way you're frozen with That's, that's, what, what, we that's, we here. that's <laughs> what we do. We we call it Team Riley. So if you wanna be a member of Team Riley, you know, we'll we'll chat. Oh, well I'm on Team Twelve Twenty already. So Yeah, team Tony, <laughs> <crazy>. Team Riley. <laughs> Yeah, lots of fun clubs around here. Okay, I want to get into just a couple of the fan questions that we had. You're very popular. So it wouldn't be fair if I just spent the entire time asking my questions as much as I want to do that. (laughs) This first question is from Sarah, and I do want to say this is my sister, She never participates in my podcast, and she's a (laughs) big big fan of yours. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to have to get Jenny on a few more times to get her to listen. (laughs) Sure. But she would like to know. What is
0: something that as a player you learned or developed that has helped you become a better coach today?
1: That's a great question, and there's probably um, I could probably write a book on that. Um, you know, I will say one of the things that that I did learn that I, that I find myself having conversations with athletes about a lot, but not just athletes. Um, you know, I speak a lot at, at corporations, businesses, to leaders, women's groups, churches. Like I, I do, do a lot of speaking in a lot of different spheres, and this is something that. I find myself talking about a lot um, and and I experienced as a player and learned kind of the hard way is the difference between a perfectionist mentality and a healthy high achiever um, Mm -hmm. mentality and how to know which, which one you are. And it's fluid. You know, you can go from one to the other and back, but a lot of it is awareness. Um, and so, really, like having the, the self-awareness to know where you're falling at, at any given moment, or in any given part of your life, and then trying to, you know, uh, take steps to get yourself back into the healthy, healthy high achiever mode as opposed to the perfectionist mode. So I'll just I'll just give it put it in, in basketball terms. So, again, because of my my parents, I grew up as an athlete. With no pressure and not focused on performance um, or future, I was very much what we call in the zone. You know, and this is a life principle. This is not just a sport principle. This is this is just a, a how you thrive in a in a fully satisfied life is you want to mm-hmm. be living in the zone. Living in the zone, it, and we as an athlete is when you're just lost in the moment, lost in the competition, lost in the moments with your teammates. You really, like, you, you almost, it's, it's such a high, but you will optimally perform in that zone because there is no, like, regret about the past. There is no fear of the future. There is no uh, fear of failure. It is just, like, so lost in the moment and the joy of the moment that you, you, you're free. You're almost mindless. And you take on a real platonic uh, state, and that's where that term flow comes from, and there's a real grace to it. And when, you know, when I, was in, when I was in that state, you know, which I was much of my athletic career, again, thanks to my parents and their mindset, I mean, I just, I loved it. I loved every track workout and every practice and every challenge, and I wanted to go against the best of the best, no matter how much they kicked my butt, you know, because it wasn't about winning and losing. It was about the love of the, the sport, the love of the, and really more so the love of the competition, and if you're in a healthy, high-achieving state, you know that going against people that are better than you, falling down, failing, that's what. That's where the growth takes place. Yeah. You know, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. If you're winning all the time, you're not growing. You know, if, if you're not failing and you're not free to fail, you're not growing. And when you're a healthy, high-achiever, you're really stimulated um, internally by the growth process. And you hear a lot now about the growth mindset and all that, but, I mean, this is just my experience that now is in a million books about learning how to have a growth mindset. Um, and when you're in the perfectionist, you, you know it because you start to feel fear, tightness. Um, you're not in the moment. You're either in the past or the future. And I remember when that, when that shifted for me. Um, mm-hmm. it's the first time I felt it was I had signed to, to play at the University of Virginia and I was in high school and I was leading the state in scoring, which I didn't even know. And I they, I came home from a game. I found out later I'd scored like 30 something points. We won the game and I stormed to my room, slammed the door. I mean, just steam coming out of me everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't know what, what I was perseverating over, but some some mistake or mistakes that I had made. And that's all I could focus on. Perfectionist mindset. Um, and I remember my mom coming in and, and she had the phone in her hand and she said, I'm, I'm calling Debbie Ryan, who's the coach at the University of Virginia. They were number one in the nation at the time. I had signed a scholarship there. I'm calling Debbie Ryan. You're not going there to play my school. I'm sorry. Because the second you stop enjoying this and start acting like this about the game is the second I, I'm – forbidding you to continue and she was serious like she was going to take away my dream at that time to play basketball at the University of Virginia because my mindset was was slipping and it really made an impression on me so then I go to Virginia and I'm like totally free Debbie Ryan had told me you're probably never going to play here you know we're really good when I'm one the nation I don't know if you're ever going to play here I'm like cool you know I want to be part of something bigger than myself Um, and I ended up starting my freshman year first game And then I remember, like, it was maybe my sophomore year, junior year, um, I started slipping into this perfectionist mindset because she had been saying to me for those years, like, you know, we have some players on our team that make terrible decisions, they take terrible shots, so I need you to continue to be that smart player that, you know, takes great shots, doesn't turn it over, doesn't make mistakes. So what I heard was, doesn't miss, doesn't turn it over, doesn't make mistakes. Uh-huh. And that clicked me into, okay, I want to please her, again, a perfectionist mindset. And I lost my confidence, my freedom, my mojo. And, uh, and it wasn't until my senior year when I'm like, you know what? I'm not going out like this. I, this is just punk. You know, like screw her, screw this. And I, I had this conversation with Sue Bird not too long ago when they were in the bubble, like a month or two ago. Sue, you got to get back to the screw it mentality, You're overthinking everything, like, you know, like, who cares what this person thinks and how this, you got to get back to the screw it mentality. It can't be about other people's expectations, can't be about what other people think, can't be about winning the championship, it's got to be about finding your mojo and getting back in that, in that zone. I think that that's just like great advice for anyone listening who, maybe you don't want to be a professional athlete but like in whatever job you choose to do I felt that listening to you talk right now like yeah there are moments where I start to slip into like nah, well they, I don't know if that's going to work out for me you know like that perfectionist but like screw it mm-hmm. not about anyone yep. else I need, to, I need to ground myself and focus on what you have said this entire episode of like why you love doing this It comes back to that love of whatever it is you enjoy. And the irony is that when you're in that mindset of not focusing on results and really not caring so much about results, that's when you actually get the best results. Yeah. That's when you actually perform the best, but you're not focused on that. You know, and, and that, uh, again, like I could go into all kinds of tangents of how that translates into different different aspects of our life and our mental health. Um, But it is a concept that we all should be like trying to understand and implement and assimilate into every area of our life and help our kids with. Like my child is two. She does not like to fail or fall down. She's not a risk taker. She's gifted, but she doesn't like to do anything that she can't do well. And so I'm already, like, trying to help her with, like, every time she falls down when she's trying to ride her bike, whatever, like, yeah, good job, way to fall down, we're just going to get back up, you know, but, like, celebrating the mistakes and failing because she already is just born with a wiring to want to be good at things, which is not a bad thing, but there has to be that balance, you know, and you can't be good or happy or successful if you're not, you know, if you're afraid to fail. I think you found the title for your book. Whenever you've got time to write it, it's uh, The Screw It Mentality. <laughs> Trademark that. She's a miss The beep, beep, beep mentality. Yeah, that's it. We do a lot of swearing on this show, you know, as the creator and uh, producer. we yeah. make the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, we all hmm. need that reminder. Um, and we all need to get that, to that place where it's like we don't care so much. In a, in a lot of ways, and it's counterintuitive, but, I mean, there's a sweet spot there that we all, you know, need to try to stay in, stay into. That's so true. All right, our next question is from Kat. They would like to know, who was someone you looked up to as an athlete growing up? Um, you know, we did not have really female athletes to look up to that we could actually see most right. of my life growing up. But I will say that, um, that Pat Summit was, was a huge role model to me growing up in the state of Tennessee because she was one of the first, you know, really, really, really like mega epically powerful female leaders that even men of all demographics, like one of her autographs, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. she just commanded every room. So she was like such a powerful leader that carried herself with so much grace um, and so much kindness. And that, that dichotomy is rare, but I think it's what sets apart every elite leader is, you know, there's this power that is coupled with a compassion and and empathy um, and grace and kindness that, you know, connects, connects them and, and really, Multiplying their influence, and I think it's one of the attributes of the greatest leaders that least talked about, and that's that's their empathy and emotional IQ. Um, so just seeing, like like I said, Pat Summit, um, you know, up close and personal, growing up in that state as a young a young girl, a young female, I think that was that was a real deep imprint on me. I even like to end the show by asking this question. So, Jenny, what is something you are proud of yourself for? Oh man! Did um, you squeak? I mean, no, no, I mean, I kind of, you know, I'm kind of like <laughs> rubbing my chin, and, and you can see like all kinds of ugly facial expressions right now. Um, no, it's it's a good question, and and these are the type of questions that I'm. I think all females are challenged with. I mean, if you ask a man that question, they probably tell you 10 things without like right. breaking an eye and we females struggle to, to do this. But um I think I'd say probably the thing that I'm most proud of um, is my resilience and tenacity. And, yeah. you know, I think that's something that I w- that I've been born with. Um, I think, you know, I come from a family that has reinforced that, but just, you know, people see my resume. They see what's on Wikipedia, um, but only my my close friends and and maybe some other people know all of the dark places that I've been and all of the, the you know, real hard things that that I've been through. And, and like I said, really, really, some very dark, dangerous times. And and so um, I think that would be the thing that I'm most proud of is is that. Um, with the help of a lot of really good people. Um, I've learned to to be vulnerable. I've learned to be authentic. I've learned to let people know me and and help me Um, because I went through a lot of my life just putting on the strong front, having the broad shoulders, helping everybody else, and not really letting anybody help me. And I think that's something I'm proud of is that I've learned to do that, and that's given me a lot of, um, you know, resilience.
0: Brene Brown, one of my favorite yes.
1: people to read anything she ever says. She always says to be vulnerable is to be brave. Um And, so exactly right. and I, I love her. I just for, watched her show yeah, on Netflix. I know, Netflix. right? Oh, oh, so good. Oh, I've watched
0: it so many times. Whenever I need, like, how she says, like, her come back, her come to
1: Jesus moment, I'm like, okay, I need to come back here. <laughs> I need to listen to yeah. Brene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But – I so thank you you for your willingness to to share different parts of your story experiences. You've had things that you've gone through on this show today. Um, You're so appreciated. And I I feel very honored to be a member of 1220. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for all you're doing. You know, this is such a powerful medium and telling people stories and, and us being able to just be open and transparent and authentic, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing. So thank you for having that platform to all to help all of us. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for listening this week, guys. You are also very much appreciated. For Jenny Busick, I'm Amanda Smith. We'll catch you next time.